Welcome to the Natural Running Network. My name is Richard Diaz, and what I hope to do is introduce you to some amazing athletes and luminaries from the sports science community, and what has come to be expected, I'll provide some highly opinionated rants on all aspects of endurance sports and my current favorite, obstacle course racing. Now sit tight, grab a cup of coffee, and let's do this. Okay, so I'm going to do something this time around that I've never done before. Uh, as many people know, I do video gait analysis with clients where they're in some other part of the world and do not have the ability to potentially come and visit with me personally. So we do it over the phone. We do it through Skype and we support the conversation with video. So what might be the case is you send me video clips of you running and I push the video clips into my analysis software, make some notes, send them back to the particular client, and then we discuss what we see, what needs to be corrected, if anything, and that's the relationship. And um, given that I've never done this before, I thought it would be cool to actually have a client on live with me to discuss what we've been up to and how it's going, and he's got questions. So he was asking me questions through email, that I thought would be really entertaining for other people to hear the answers to. So with no further ado, I want to introduce you to Mark Falcone. He's from what part of Pennsylvania again? Westchester, Pennsylvania. Westchester, Pennsylvania. And you are training in a facility known as? Icor Fitness. Cool. Icor Fitness is basically a ninja gym. Yes? No? Yeah. So we do uh, primarily Ninja Warrior and um, OCR specifically. Um, but most of our most of our like adult group programming is specifically obstacle course racing. Cool. Now, can you share with the listeners essentially who you are, what's going on, what led you to call me, and such? Yeah, sure. So uh, again, my name is Mark Falcone. Um, again, reside in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Uh, I got into running about maybe twelve years ago. Um, competed mostly just like local level stuff, five um, k up to ultra marathoning kind of tried a little bit of everything um i found spartan race and tough mudder uh, about eight years ago and fell in love with it um i just love the variety of be of you know coupling strength with um endurance running um so i ended up actually starting a business icor fitness um in westchester which is a ninja warrior kind of calisthenic obstacle course training facility and uh in doing so got more and more into the ocr racing and in programming my running, uh, I've been able to get decently competitive, but still far away from that like top level elite. And uh, I never really had any formal running training per se. Um, so just following some of the top athletes, obviously, Rich, you come up uh, a good amount. And um, yeah, I started following following some of the analysis that you've been doing with um, you know with Hunter, um, with VJ, and uh, and Ryan Fish recently as well. And uh, I just decided that maybe it's time to try and get some outside opinion and some expertise in, in what I felt like was one of my issues. Again, I'd, I'd love to make it out there and do the whole gamut of testing. But I figured what I felt like in my running was adding volume always resulted in injury, which I, I knew had to be somewhat because of my gait. 
And uh, since that's something that you specifically hone in on, uh, I figured I'd give it a shot. Very um, cool. Since, uh, since doing that, I've had a lot of other athletes um, from my facility as well that have started doing it. So it's pretty interesting to take it on and just kind of see where it goes. Yeah. So now from my take, here's what happens. I'll see video and it's interesting when I pop these videos open for the first time, I realize that somebody I don't know, don't really know anything about them, what to expect. And uh, I just get a chance to see somebody running either on a track, across trail, maybe on a treadmill. And then that's my introduction to the individual. And so in your case, you kind of fell into this category of obviously very fit. You know, you got a healthy guy, his strength to weight ratio is very good and running fast and running hard on a track. And when you slow it all down, you could see where there are some problems that would result in potential injury and or limiting the potential to be the athlete that you potentially could be. So you weren't getting as much from your body as you possibly could. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that. And I, I kind of knew that as, especially when I would go to races and I look at, you know, the, the top level elite racers and they finish the race and they look like they're perfectly fine. And I'm redlining off the gate. Um, and I just realized that I'm, I have the ability to push really hard and endure a lot of pain, but uh, it's not necessarily the most effective way to try and uh, get faster as well. Well, yeah. So again, it becomes a function of physics. And I talk to people about this all the time. And I always lend back to the logic that's associated with the way you're moving. And there are people who have an opinion, actually several people that have opinions in respect to what would be the thing to do. I, I kind of narrow it down to one thing. It's either you are working with gravity, you're working with inertia, you're not opposing your forward progress, or you are. And the people that want to get a handshake off on the ability to run on their heels and feel like that's okay because it's not been a problem, you're a classic case of that. So here's a guy that's really fit, clearly overstriding, clearly landing on his heels first, and not really experiencing any injuries. I think that was the conversation we had is you weren't really hurt, but you were kind of put out after event. You were, felt like you were working a lot harder than some of the other guys that were maybe ahead of you. Yeah, pretty much correct. I mean, I've, I've dealt with knee pain, uh, especially when, when doing like longer distance stuff, but I've getting older and trying to train more specific since racing has kind of gotten more specific. Um, I've gone for like the shorter events, which have allowed me to run harder and, and add in a little bit more, I guess, training at, you know, higher zones um, without getting any major injuries. But again, I kind of always just felt broken after a race and, uh, and recovery was just like not there. Um, and I, I realized that part of that was just due to being inefficient on how I was training. Yeah, and I see a lot of that. I mean, there's more of it than you'd like to believe. And it's, it's uh, I don't, I mean, we, we always talk about where it came from. Where did the corruptions result? How did it come about? Why so many people are actually running poorly as opposed to uh, what they would like to believe is running naturally. And Running naturally, if you watch children play, if you watch a kid five years old running across a lawn, I was making comments the other day to a friend of mine. I've got a neighbor that lives across the street from me. He's got a couple kids. And I'm not terribly sure how old the kids are, but they're young, 
pretty young and you know i'm in california so even today here we're in the end of november the weather outside is going to be about 75 degrees today and the kids very commonly are running around barefoot out front screaming down the sidewalk barefoot no thought of oh my god this is hard on my feet <laughs> oh my god i better put some shoes on Oh my God, I better run off and buy some hokas to protect my feet from this ground contact. It's just interesting how unadulterated running as a child, a natural function of movement, where as we get older, we get wrapped up into different shoe designs. And next thing you know, we've got a shoe with an elevated heel. And these are all marketing positions that put us in a bad place. And the outcome is it alters our functionality. And I've said this a million times, so I'm going to say it again. Every shoe that you put on your foot will alter your natural function. And so what you want to do is get to a place where the way you move is as close to natural as possible. If you were to take most anybody and have them run across a paved or concrete road barefoot, I promise you they're not going to land on their heels first. Your natural inclination is not to run on your heels unprotected. So getting to a place where you can run the way your body was designed to run, which means to get from your forefoot to your heel first, is the goal. And in your case, you did pretty well, have done pretty well, I'm sure ended up on the podium often, just because you've outworked other athletes. You haven't out finessed them, but you definitely outworked other athletes. Is that pretty? Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. And uh, yeah, I, I just pretty much again, like I said, I, I've watched some of them, and they just feel it, it looks like, you know, they're not, it's effortless compared to what I know I'm going through. And uh, and yeah, with that stride, one of the things that I, I realized when that kind of hit home with me was I I've been involved in this and in the fitness industry for a while now. So I kind of, I, I always understood like strike with your four, midfoot, forefoot. But again, once some of the, uh, some of the cues that you gave me really kind of like hit home on understanding better. Cause even though I knew the stride, once I open up and start going fast, it all kind of just falls apart. Even when I felt like I wasn't doing what I was doing until we broke it down with you. Uh, and again, some of the key points that that I took home from the first conversation was concentrating more on keeping my foot under my knee. Just that cue alone helped me in easily remembering while I'm striding that keep your knee over your foot, keep your knee over your foot, instead of just laying on your, land on your toes it was what I was trying to do before. But what I was doing was just reaching out really far in front of me and kind of pulling the ground towards me and then pushing it behind me, which you can't really do. <laughs> efficiently no well at the end of the day what ends up happening is you as you paw at the ground the way you described you're loading the posterior chain almost exclusively correct and this often ends up in hamstring related injuries uh a lot of times there's a lot of stress on the achilles and the calf and what some people do and, and i've seen a whole host of mistakes associated with people making transition off their heel and one of them is where, as you suggested, you're so uber focused on making sure that you make contact with the front of your foot first, you will present yourself with your foot by putting it out ahead of you so you can see, in fact, 
that no, I'm not landing on my heel. I am in fact landing on my forefoot. But the end of the day, what happens is you are putting on the brakes, you're overstriding and there's still an imposition into your forward progress. And that's a problem as well. So you may not be heel striking anymore, but you're still overstriding and you're still breaking your forward progress. So that's a mistake I see often. The other yep. consideration that I see a lot, and I think you had some trouble with, is getting to a stride frequency that's appropriate, where I want people to be at 180 strides per minute, not close to, not beyond that. I want them to try to adhere to 180 strides per minute. And the reason is because the ground contact is going to be near your center of mass, not under your center of mass. A lot of people want to talk about landing beneath themselves. You can't do that. If you try to do that, you'll end up on your face. It doesn't work. Just making contact just ahead of your center of mass, forefoot to heel. And the key in this is that you're going to result in a much more stable ground contact or landing. And from that, that stability is going to allow you to project more force to the ground and ultimately end up pushing you further through space relative to every stride you take. A lot of people get caught up in the idea that if they were to increase their stride frequency, that their stride needs to be shorter. And nothing could be further from the truth. If you do it right, your stride can open up very nicely behind you. And the result of that is you have a nice return of the knee, which is going to, as you suggested, allow you the opportunity to drop your foot beneath your knee as you make ground contact. And from that, you're going to repeat the cycle. You're going to end up getting into a nice, smooth running posture. That was another cue that kind of hit home to me, which I always, I understood the, the 180 steps per minute cadence. I never really started measuring it and slowing it down. But one of the things that kind of hit home that you had said was, if your contact, if your foot is contacting under your knee, it's contacting in the right place. All you have to worry about or you don't have to worry about what happens behind you as much as what you're worrying about in front of you, which um, really helped me in, in kind of letting go behind me and letting my stride, you know, flow naturally, but focusing on that contact point, which is the important part of where your, you know, that ground surface area is contacting with your foot. It's everything. Yeah. And, and honestly, I, I tell people that, you know, I want to hand out t-shirts that say in big letters across the front, stability. Stability is king when it comes to running. When you land ahead of your body, you're on an unstable pillar. I refer to the leg as a pillar. And in so doing, you're not able to generate the stability required to create the force you need to get good generation of power off the ground. Right. And, and so some people, what will happen is they land ahead of themselves and their core strength isn't there for them. So their hips collapse. And they may have uh, what's called valgus knee. The knee falls inward. And then they have IT band issues. Or they may pronate. And the foot drops in. And then the knee drops in behind the foot. And then you have potpourri of injury potential from issues with the ankle, issues with the plantar fascia, issues with the knee, issues with shin splints, issues with the IT band, right on up to the hip and back. And it all comes from initial ground contact being unstable. So I tell people all the time, stability is king. Focus on stability. All the other stuff you worry about is secondary. 
shouldn't worry about whether your stride is long behind you, whether you kick your heel up towards your butt, all those things that people get polluted with in thought that doesn't seem to make ends meet. It doesn't allow you to get into a better place. Now, you had an interesting question that prompted me to want to get you on to do this with me to begin with. And the question you posed, if I'm not mistaken, you could correct me if I'm wrong, was how long does it take? Yeah, so I, I guess it's a case-by-case question, but because I've always just kind of, in my running, I'd go out and run, and I have long run days and short run days and speed days and interval days, and then kind of once I started down this process, I realized, like, I kind of have to start over, and obviously the volume's going to come down. One of the things that I noticed off the bat was as soon as I started, the once the cadence was correct and the stride was correct, obviously I'm going super slow just to drill that cadence. But I realized that for the first about two weeks, my calves were like blown up. And uh, I realized that I haven't been using my calves as much as I've been using my joints in the way that I was running. Now that pain, that, that I guess soreness um, has subsided since then. Right from then I went into like more, I guess, some kind of tightness in, in the ankle slash like Achilles area which has also subsided just by getting used to that flexion. Um, but I think since I was striding out in front of me, um, I just wasn't used to that like flexion on the ground. So I've kind of gotten into a comfortable place now where my cadence has been efficient um, and mileage wise, I'm like adding in a little bit of a little bit more volume here and there. Um, but I guess my, my question was like, do you have a, a ballpark of someone in my position coming in with, you know, years of background in running, but now trying to kind of retrain how long I should be locked into this, like, slow it down. I mean, as slow as you need to, to drill that cadence and then slowly adding the speed back in. At what point would you say is, is kind of an, a ballpark of how long this type of transition should take? Well, you nailed it. It's, it's definitely a case-by-case scenario, but what you just depicted to me is a successful path because you, you know, between our conversations and your own foresight, you realized that you needed to slow down to get it right. Because, uh, I mean, the second run of videos that you sent me, you were pretty much doing a lot of the same thing you were doing the first time. And uh, you, you did not retard the speed and the absence of correction. Um, in other words, you tossed the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> You, you're, you're just going too fast and there's no way you're going to find those corrections by going that quickly that early. And so the speed is something you earn with time. And the fact that you identified that you needed to back off a little bit, I mean, obviously we talked about it, but backing off the volume is critical because let's just say hypothetically you're running 40 miles a week. That's kind of your go-to weekly mileage. And the intensity in which you approach it is generally pretty high. And then you change the dynamic of the way you approach the ground. You're invoking new contractions from musculature that you haven't been employing before. And just that transition alone is enough to put you in a tailspin. You can end up really ending up hurting yourself if you don't throttle back a little bit and give yourself a chance to adopt the new change. And so... To answer your question, you'll have people that just refuse to back off because they're afraid they're, they're going to sacrifice their fitness 
And going down that rabbit hole, they end up injuring themselves. So let's look at that for a second. Let's just suggest that you're one of those people and you didn't allow yourself the time you needed to adapt to the changes that are necessary. And you end up stressing your calf, stressing your Achilles, your plantar fascia, whatever it might be. And you get to potentially a stage of tendonitis. And then, you know, you don't want to give that up. You're still trying to work through the pain, which is a lot. You'd be surprised how many people will push through pain when they shouldn't. And then they end up adding potentially a month or two to the timeline that is required to adopt. Because ultimately what's going to end up happening after they injure themselves is they're going to have to slow down in order to recover from the injury. And then ultimately, because they slowed down in fear of injury again, you know, they drink the Kool-Aid and they start approaching as they should. So there's, I guess, essentially two timelines. There's the people that are willing to slow down, sacrifice a few weeks of their training speed-wise, and then ultimately get back into proper running mechanics, and they're going to get on the other side of things pretty quick. I know for me, when I first made the adjustments, and trust me when I tell you, back in the day when I was a young runner in the 30s, I was a heel striker. Everybody was a heel striker. We all wore Nike airbag type shoes, and we oh, yeah. all ran on our heels. And uh, when I figured out that this was wrong and there was a better way, my calves, like yours, were screaming at me. And I think it took me about two weeks to get through that type of calf stress. And I never looked back. After once I got through it, I just never looked back. I spent a lot of time wearing compression sleeves on my, on my calves. I was putting rock tape on my calves. And, and uh, I, that's how I rolled for a few weeks. And I busted out the other side and, and just never had another problem with it. And here I am, you know, next week I'm going to turn 67 years old and I can, I mean, I ran, I don't know, on the beach just this past weekend, barefoot. I could run. Uh, I, well, I, first of all, I don't recommend running on unnatural surfaces barefoot. It's just kind of a dangerous proposition, but the surface is really not an issue. It's, uh, potentially stepping on a piece of glass or you know a rock or something like that it's just not worth it but i don't really need a, other other than a little bit of protection beneath my shoe to protect my foot i don't need a big cushy sole to protect me and, and most people that know me know i'm, I'm no little guy I'm, I'm a big guy and my weight isn't an issue for my running mechanics uh, it's certainly an issue for my speed but at the end of the day you can get through it. And I think that what will end up happening with you based on what you've told me is as long as you slow down well enough to adopt the proper mechanics and then you progressively introduce speed and do it in such a way that mechanics rule. If you start to violate the way you're moving in uh, lieu of speed, in other words, you give up gate mechanics in order to find speed, you'll lose. If you always allow your gait mechanics to guide your speed, you'll you'll come out the other end pretty quickly. All right, got it. Um, in in that cadence, um, and I guess this kind of goes along with that question um, because I've been I've found that when I start speeding up or adding in more speed, um, my gait or at least my my strike point has been getting pretty natural of hitting underneath me. And again, some of those cues have been awesome. But what I've noticed is I get to certain speeds, which 
I'm trying to close the gap slowly but surely um, where my my cadence is thrown off. And now that's it's kind of hard without running every run with a metronome. Yeah, I don't know what I'm running until after I've finished. And then I look at, you know, I look at the data and I'm like, oh, wow, I was off by, you know, as soon as I sped up, I was running 190 or, uh, or 170, you know, either or. Um, would you recommend then saying, all right, well, we got to back down the speed again until we can lock in that exactly 180? Well, for, for starters, I think that you need to, until you adopt the cadence, you need to keep a metronome handy. And a lot of people are using their phone for their metronome, and I think that works really well. That's what I've been doing. Yeah, assuming that you're not having to run down a road. Because yeah. carrying the phone in your hand or trying to keep it close by so you can hear the metronome is not exactly what I would call convenient. You can go onto Amazon.com and buy one of these little portable metronomes that clip onto your pants. I, I think they're like they're less than twenty bucks, and uh, all it does is you set the frequency and it, it'll tap 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 give you a little audible tapping sound to let you know you're on point. I have a couple of clients locally that that are using that and it's working really well for them. One of the guys that trains with us on Tuesday mornings, a guy named Jimmy Stratton has one of these that he purchased a long time ago. And I'm telling you, this guy was just like you. He was, he was tall. He was fit. He was lean. And he, he overstrided like there was no tomorrow because he's pretty tall anyway. Yeah. And he, he now is killing it. His stride mechanics are on point. And uh, I know he still keeps that metronome on when he goes long, just to make sure. But commonly, he can run pretty efficiently and be very, very close to where he needs to be without having to hear it. I can tell you, VJ doesn't listen to a metronome. And, uh, you know, I train with him every Tuesday morning, and, and his mechanics are spot on. He's dead on 100, 180 strides per minute, even regardless of how fast he's moving. Yeah, and we, we'll do treadmill workouts where he's running at a, a five-minute mile pace or less and still be steady on 180 strides per minute. So he's creating speed and able to create speed without violating the frequency. And the outcome, obviously, is that because he's hitting it right, he's getting more from each stride that he takes because he's stable. I keep referring back to stability. And that I'm telling you, Anybody listening to this, they need to realize that's what they're, that's the holy grail. That's what you should be searching for. Finding as much stability off ground contact as possible and as soon as possible. Now, um, one of the things that in, in, uh, in the last uh, couple of videos that I'd sent you, um, which you had said we're looking a lot better, um, that uh, my, I, I told you, I, I kind of feel, I feel like my stride feels good. Everything feels smooth, but I feel very like rigid. And I think you had, you had called it apprehension in my gait. Um, yes. Now what, what it feels like to me is it kind of feels like my, like my toes are flexed. My feet are like constantly flexed as I'm running in that, that pattern. Is that normal or should I be feeling like that or should it feel more natural? Well, I want to make sure I understand what you're saying. When you say flex, do you mean do you feel like your toes are splaying out or do you feel like your toes are in a rigid position when you hit the ground? Yeah, kind of. I think more rigid would be the, the definition I would give it. All right. So th I think we talked about this, but I want to make sure we're on the same page. Realize when you transition from your heel to your forefoot, rolling off your heel 
the, there's such a lapse in stability on ground contact that you roll over your foot before you actually get to a place where you're 100% stable. And right. that, that's problematic. What needs to have happen is your, your big toe, your great toe, needs to have good mobility. You need to be able to flex that great toe about 30% in deflection. Okay. And some, some people may want to measure that by sitting at a desk or something and crossing their legs and grabbing their big toe and twisting it to see whether they have good mobility in the great toe. Well, I got news for you. That doesn't get it. You have to have your foot on the ground. So if you stood up and had somebody get hold of your big toe and while you're keeping your foot on the ground, pull your great toe up to see how much mobility you have. If you have a limit in that range of motion off your great toe, that too causes a spiral of effect through the kinetic chain. So in a perfect world, if you have good mobility off your great toe, it causes stability to occur in your midfoot. Okay. The stability that you gain in your midfoot due to that mobility in your big toe provides for mobility at the ankle. And you need to have good mobility at the ankle. You need to be able to dorsiflex, cause your knee to come over your great toe on the ground. Or another way to look at it is uh, if you're on the ground flexing your foot upward towards your ankle, you need good range of motion there as well. So if there's a limitation in that chain, you may sense a little bit of rigidity in your foot. So I like to do a lot of mobility drills, barefoot, rolling over a lacrosse ball, some kind of a spiky ball. Really love the stick mobility exercises. I think we, we talked about this, you and I. Um, yeah. But you got to get up on your, on your toes and you got to flex your arch and cause your arch to get stronger and get your toes working for you. And so... You know, this is all part of the process. You've learned that there's different sensations as you reach to different parts of your body as you make ground contact opposed to what you had done historically. And this revelation and this, this whole talk through of these circumstances is very good fodder for you to find the correct thing to have happen. So I, honestly, it sounds to me like you're, you know, you're right. I just reflected back on the video you sent me on the treadmill. That was a million times better than what you sent me before. Right. A million times better. I mean, you were landing on your forefoot. Your contact point was good. Your foot was making contact beneath your knee. Uh, I don't know specifically what the, uh, the gait frequency was. I'm just going to assume and give you credit that you were probably doing the right thing where frequency was concerned. And right. this is the path. I quote this often. There's a guy by the name of Jay Desherry who's one of the top biomechanists in the country when it comes to running gait. And he said it best, it takes about 6,000 correct actions to create a new habit. Huh. I'm not sure that's the way he said it, but that's what he meant. So in other words, 6,000 times of doing it right in order for a new habit to take place. Now, mind you, if you ran and got 2,000 steps correctly and started having a conversation with your friend while you're running and then change what you're doing, you could erase those 2,000 Right. Valuable out the, steps. Out the window at that point, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when you get to a place where you got about that much under your belt doing it right, it starts to become a new habit. And I see this commonly. I have lots of people that, are, that surround me that I've worked with over the years that we don't even have to have this conversation about 
their gait frequency or making contact off their forefoot, that's the new normal for them. They just, that's just the way they run. Then it becomes a function of how much more speed they can generate. And I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a art form. It, it takes a long time and ultimately a lifetime to really hone your skills. It really, really does. Anybody that thinks they own it, that's about the stupidest mistake you could ever possibly have come out of your mouth because huh. it's always a work in progress. You're always going to be working on the way you move to make it better. And the better you get, the faster you go, the less stress your body's going to experience. And at the end of the day, that's, that's what it's all about. I mean, yeah, look, look at a martial artist yeah. uh, or a gymnast for that matter. I mean, there's no point in perfection. There's always a work of, of study. There's always that, that time you have to invest in order to ensure that you're getting better and better and better at what you're doing. Or if nothing else, sustaining the perfection that you may have created for yourself. It takes time. And, right. and I, I use this analogy a lot because it's good reference for me because he's handy. I, I work with VJ very, very carefully. And if you ever, ever anybody that's raced against him or watched him run, it's poetry in motion. He runs so well. And he'll come to me often and say, look, I want to spend some time with you in the lab. I just want to make sure I'm getting this right because I feel like I'm off a little bit. Every now and then he'll feel like he needs to readjust the way he's moving. And so speed is out the window. Any concern for anything other than the proper mechanics is out the window. And we'll get together, we'll hone in on it. We'll, we'll make the corrections that we needed to make. And then voila, all of a sudden he's able to produce this effortless speed once again. And so, and this has been, you know, a few years in the making and, and probably a year from now, we'll still have this conversation where we're still working on finding that perfect, you know, stride frequency. So. Interesting. And again, on, on going back to your, you had talked a little bit about ground contact and what's your take on ground contact? Should it, should I be concentrating on spending as little time on the ground as possible? Or is that not, is there no real effect there of how long your stride is from the time that you hit the ground? Well, again, if uh, the, the length of time that you're on the ground has a lot to do with the frequency of your gait, right? So if you're at 180 strides per minute, you can only be on the ground so long. Okay. And so what really wants to have happen is that, your flight time improves relative to each step you take. So in other words, you're covering more distance relative to the time on the ground. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I guess that makes sense. So, yeah. So try, try, to, try to envision this. If you're on a treadmill and I have you at 180 strides per minute at five miles per hour. Yeah. And then I adjust the treadmill to 10 miles per hour and you stay at the same, same frequency, the belt represents ground travel right? So right. more of the belts passing before you make contact with the ground again. So your flight time is essentially changing, but your stride frequency is not, right? right. And yeah. so going across the ground, it's kind of the same. And it seems kind of uh, a paradox, but it essentially is, that's what it is. Because when you start turning your legs over faster, the expense associated with the way you're moving goes up. It becomes more expensive. So metabolically, it becomes corrupt. You, you end up getting acidic. You start to develop a lot of lactic acid buildup in the muscles. And that becomes a shunting factor too. 
and that'll shut down your ability to produce work. So you, you, you want to be very, very sparingly in respect to turning your legs over faster. So in other words, if you see the finish line and you're, you've done all you can to create as much speed as possible at that frequency, all that's left is for you to turn your legs over quicker. And then uh, by all means do it if that's all you have left. But you better make sure that it's going to get you to the finish line because it's like hitting that little retro switch in, in those yeah. little rice rockets where the nitro switch goes off. Yeah, once, yeah. That, once you shoot that shot, you right. know, it's over. You're on borrowed time at that point. Excellent. Absolutely. So. And now with, with uh, last, last question, I guess I had for you on, on the cadence um, in regards to Hills. Cause I've realized as I've been drilling the cadence on flat ground track or treadmill, it's, it's been super easy for me to, to drill that and get it pretty honed in exactly to 180. Now I've realized on my, on my GPS and, and even with the metronome, uh, when I do trails or, uh, or any like downhill, especially, um, it's, it's really hard to maintain that cadence cause I'm pretty much breaking, especially on steeper hills. Do you condone breaking cadence on hills at all? Or is that, I, I think, I think that with gravity at your back going downhill, you're not accelerating more cost. You're just getting out of your own way. And uh, it's a function of what you can manage. So if you're confident in bombing down the hill and turning your legs over at 200 strides per minute, good for you. I just suggest to people that they need to be cautious because obviously if you slow your cadence down, you're braking. Yep. And braking now you're, you've got the earth fighting you and gravity pushing you harder into the earth. And that's a problem. So right. you want to pass over the ground as quickly as possible. And I, I've done this with people where I measured the, the, uh, the cadence on a downhill as opposed to what they might naturally do, restraining them to 180 strides per minute and then allowing them to let their legs turn over as quick as possible or try braking and just simply ask them, what do you feel more comfortable doing? What, what do you think you can support? And uh, I find that a lot of times people like being at 180 on downhill. It's more sustainable over a greater length of time and not being out of control. I mean, when you get to a place where you're ripping down the mountain, I mean, all bets are off. You, you're, you're, you're subject to uh, injury by tripping over something or, you know, you hit a root or you hit a rock or something like that. Next thing you know, your ankle's gone. Yeah. So, so you want to have a controlled descent. But it's not the same circumstances as being on flat ground. So I'm not really a hardliner when it comes to maintaining frequency on a downhill. Uh, I like that answer because I was having a really hard time doing that. Yeah. Uh, my thought was I'm just going to keep going faster and faster if I'm leaning into it. If you can uh, get away with it. Yeah. And um, then what about uphill? Would that be? A I've had people. I mean, it depends on the length of the hill. Okay. It de depends on the, uh, the steepness of the hill. Okay. Uh, and again, I, I'm an experience-based kind of guy. I like to test it, see how it goes, not just, you know, chase theory down a rabbit hole. Yeah, that's why I like you. Yeah. And I, believe me, I, I have taken like groups of people countless times where I have them run up a, a relatively steep hill and say, okay, run up the hill like you normally might and now try it at frequency and you know, now try it with quicker free. And we just experiment and they get to the bottom of the hill. We pose the question, what was easier for you? What did you feel like was more manageable? And I find that more often than not, most people like 
to be at that guarded frequency. It's a little quicker than loping up the hill. It's a little slower than taking really short, choppy steps up the hill. And for most people, it seems to be better sustainability. But when it comes to gravity and moving across flat ground, being at 180 strides per minute, in 99% of the circumstances, is the way to go. Okay, cool. I like that answer. Good. So before we, we're going to wrap this up now because we're running out of time here, but I, I want you to just kind of globally uh, give your honest opinion. You know, you took us on to help you with your, your gate virtually, meaning that you're not in front of me. You're, you're in Pennsylvania somewhere. I'm on the West Coast. Do you feel like it's, it's worked for you? Do you feel like you would recommend it to somebody to help you? Yeah, I mean, like uh, like I said, and, and you can put this in any part of the podcast that you want. Um, one of the things that, you know, for me, I was like, let me just be the guinea pig, try it out. Uh, I was a little apprehensive to doing something online. I felt like that wouldn't be as beneficial. Um, but again, I feel like there were, there were key takeaways from it. Um, just in, after a few minutes of talking to you when I sent that first, um, that first analysis. Uh, one of the things that I, I was really impressed by was um, going over some of the corrections that I, that I, some of the things that I could improve on. I had been having trouble this season with like nagging injuries, I would say. I've been able to train through them, but um, specifically stuff that I haven't had in the past uh, in regards to like shin splints, um, IT band tightness, um, a lot of hamstring issues that have been nagging throughout the season. Um, what was interesting was when you first broke down my stride, before I even told you any of those things, you pointed out, this is going to lead to tight calves, you know, shin splints, IT band issues, hamstring issues, and, uh, and all of those things were, uh, were what I've been plagued with all year. So it was interesting to me that obviously this guy knows what he's talking about when you were able to explain the issues that I was going to have running the way I was when I was already having those issues. Um, so that was kind of a, yeah, to me is confirmed that, you know, you know what you're doing. Obviously you've been doing it with a lot of the, pretty much all of the elite athletes, uh, specifically in obstacle course racing. Um, and that was another one of the things that, again, I've been following you for a while and, uh, yeah, not only do you have a great sense on running and running properly, um, but you tie it specifically into obstacle course racing pretty well. Um, and the being that, you know, you've worked with the majority of obstacle course racers at an elite level, uh, to me, it kind of made sense that you were the best fit for me to go, uh, and at least try it out and see if, uh, see if there's something that I can, I can get out of it. Um, and definitely hundred percent. I think, I think it's been also, uh, it gives me a little bit more reliance to actually slow down and actually do the work and put it in when there's someone out there on the other side waiting for me to send back the data of what I've been drilling. Um, so it gives me like a little bit more, um, I don't know what the word is there. Uh, I get your meaning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I appreciate the comments. So yeah. what I'm really curious to see, and we're, we're going to have to visit it is like maybe six months out, see how you're doing. Cause yeah. that conversation is going to be entertaining for a lot of people when they find yeah. out that, your speed's dropped. You're, you're, you're able to go faster, less pain, um, more volume, winning more races. That's when it gets to be entertaining. That's, that's where, in my mind, the rubber meets the road. That's the goal, man. And, uh, and I think you know, this, starting down this journey has really 
paved the way for me to create a structure and, and stick to it and see what comes out the other end. Very cool. Mark, I appreciate you doing this with me. Uh, I know we're going to run out of time here. So uh, listen, enjoy Thanksgiving and uh, hey. keep up the good work. You as well, man. Thanks again for your time. And I appreciate it. Look forward to talking to you soon. All right, buddy. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.